The Athletic. Hello and welcome to the Athletic Football Tactics podcast. It's the business end of the season and we are all business. I'm Ali Maxwell. With me, Michael Cox and Mark Kerry. Uh, Michael, how are you doing? I'm very well. Thank you, Ali. Enjoying the run into the season. So much going on. So much to talk about. Looking forward to today's topic. Good FA Cup final coming up. A classic piece of English football fair. The FA Cup final, still the most important game, of course, in the whole calendar. That's what we're talking about today. Michael, it's good to prize you from the warm embrace of the World Snooker Championship, which is your your sort of <laughs> annual sporting mistress, I always think. Yeah, and it clashes with some of the running. But um, yeah, what was the game on the night of the final? I think it was Brentford-Manchester United on the night of the final, which wasn't too relevant. Whereas in previous years, I have missed Leicester winning the Premier League. <laughs> and um, and Crystal Palace has come back against Liverpool um, in the three-all game in 2014 because I was watching the World Snooker final. Uh, but no such issues this time around. Fully concentrated on football. Only the small distraction of Eurovision this week, Ali, but otherwise full steam ahead. <laughs> uh, and Mark Kerry, data analyst for The Athletic or Leicester City correspondent. Which one is it? Yeah, that was really fun. Um, yeah, reported on Leicester against Everton. Um, and it was the first time I've been live to a press conference post-game because in the times that I've reported previously, it's been on Zoom, which was still really fun. But actually going in person and being two metres away or less, and yeah. I should have measured, from Frank Lampard and from Brendan Rodgers, asking Brendan Rodgers a question um, was a real thrill. Really, really fun. Um, I was very nervous asking <laughs> it. felt like a bit of a, an imposter, but so, so good. Um, and a really interesting one to, to sort of pick out um, tactically. I bet you have to, you know, your first question in a live press conference, I bet you have to practice that one in your head quite a few times. You probably still just stumble over it just a tiny bit. Uh, not exactly specific to you, happened. Mark. I think everyone would. I think everyone would. I, I've only been to a couple myself. Michael, I know you would have been to more. I, I wonder if you agree with my main takeaway from a, a live press conference compared to what I envisage them to be, having never been to one. A lot more intimate than I thought they would be, even at the very top level. Um, you know, Mark's mentioned it there, one or two metres away from Brendan Rogers. You know, they get filmed and put on Sky Sports News and, and they always seem like a bit more of an event with the with the manager at the front and everyone else sitting some metres away. It's not really the case, is it, Michael? And it means that when there are some topics and some questions that rub people up the wrong way, it's pr it can get pretty lively because it is very intimate. Yeah, I always think that when I go along, I mean, when I first started going to them, I, I was amazed that, you know, the ones that happened after the match, I was amazed the number of journalists that barely watched the match and are basically just there for the press conference. That really took me by surprise to the extent it was almost like, I'm not going to focus too much on the press conference because that's what everyone else is doing. But I always think it's, I mean, the managers are generally trying to say not much, mm. but it's more you get a, just being in the same room as someone and sometimes speaking to them directly, you do get a sense of what they're like as a person. And just really little, small, sometimes irrelevant things. But I remember the first time I was in a press conference with, with Arsene Wenger. I could not believe how tall he was. He's, <laughs> he's striking. He's not just like quite tall. He walks into me like he is, that is a tall man. That's my first impression of him. He's very tall. And I know that's you know, probably not going to influence my tactical analysis much, but... I can imagine in the dressing room, I know he wasn't one to rant and rave, but if he did have a go at you, I reckon it'd be quite intimidating. Mm. And I'd never previously thought of Wenger as a potentially intimidating figure. But uh, yeah, I think he probably was. Well, that's kind of what I was 
hinting towards is that the, the power dynamics as well when you're in person uh, and, and, and the manager very clearly in a position of power uh, and, and looking to wield that where possible for his own gain. It's uh, it's pretty interesting stuff, I must say. Um, shall we talk about the FA Cup final? Chelsea against Liverpool on Saturday late afternoon at Wembley. Michael, we've still got a few rounds of Premier League fixtures to play. Is it a disgrace that this game's being played before the end of the league season finishes? I don't think it is, actually. No, I mean, I know traditionally it was the final game of the season. I think that's ideal. But I think these days, now that the Champions League final is on a Saturday, I think it's quite difficult to schedule because it means you've got to have the FA Cup final the the week before. And then if there's a side who is involved in the Champions League final but not the FA Cup final, they've then got a two-week break between the final Premier League game and the Champions League final. So I, mm. I kind of understand how it's happened. I think basically the when the Champions League got the final got moved from a Wednesday to a Saturday, which off the top of my head was 2010, I think that by an inter-final. I don't really know if there's any better solution. So yeah, a bit of a shame, but it's not something I'll get particularly annoyed about. And I must say, I don't care that it's um, 5.30 either. Some people seem absolutely well, I think seething. It's, is it not like 4.45? Is it? You might, you're going to miss the first half, mate. <laughs> oh, okay. Thank, thanks for that. I, I want to turn, uh, I was trying to lead you down a, a negative pass there with the word disgrace in that question. Let's, let's take you down to positive town. Uh, is this the best FA Cup final fixture on paper for some time? Because Chelsea and Liverpool are second and third in the Premier League. Surprising how infrequently over the last decade or so we've had an FA Cup final between two teams in the top two or three in the Premier League. Yeah, unless I'm mistaken, you've got to go back to 2007 to find a match between two of the top three in the Premier League. There's been some decent ones in uh, in recent memory. I mean, Arsenal, Chelsea have played each other twice. Chelsea, Manchester United in 2018. Um, but yeah, it's, it, it is a bit of a cracker actually on paper. Um, I just hope that that produces the goods on the pitch because I mean going back to that 2007 final I think that's probably the worst FA Cup final I've ever seen actually <laughs> first one first, the first one at Wembley when the pitch was terrible and Drogba scored the winner in extra time but really nothing had happened before that but I think that I think football's in a, a slightly different place now compared to then I think these are two teams that go out and try to attack try to defend aggressively um, whereas back in 2007 it was two kind of counter-attacking sides who were waiting for the other to, to make the first move but no I agree with you Ali I think this should be a, a really good one and also obvious thing to say but it will be a full house which we haven't had for the last mm. two years only 20,000 in uh, last year when Leicester won and behind closed doors when Arsenal beat Chelsea so I think it'll be a really great occasion I was like a red against blue cup final as well Mark I'm going to ask you for a lot of head-based analysis, but we don't shy away from the fact that you do support Liverpool uh, and you've been having a pretty good time doing so over the last few years. So um, as, a, as a human being, as much as a data analyst, how are you feeling about this game? Is this, Do you head into the final with, with nerves or excitement? Oh, yeah. I don't normally pass an opinion. I normally just think <laughs> only with my head. I've got to actually really think about this. Um, the sort of the narrative being being true that if the best version of Liverpool turns up against even the best version of Chelsea, then, then Liverpool win it. Um, I think, but I mean, the, the fixture 
schedule is so congested. Liverpool obviously have had an injury to Fabinho from the the recent game against Aston Villa. So you think are they ever so slightly wounded? Have they still got obviously one eye on the the rest of the Premier League games and obviously the Champions League final as well? So it's there's there's caveats to it, but I do think ultimately if yeah the best version of Liverpool turns up. Um, then they should just about edge it. And I think something that raises the anticipation for this game are the four fixtures so far that have been played between Liverpool under Klopp and Tuchel's Chelsea. In chronological order, the only one that ended with a team winning in 90 minutes was a Chelsea win uh, in March of 2021. Now, uh, this was Liverpool's fifth successive competitive home defeat, which you might remember last season was a freak anomalous run. Uh, Since then, a nil-nil uh, in the Carabao Cup final, a one-all draw and a two-all draw in the Premier League. So just an errant Kepa penalty deciding the destination of the Carabao Cup. But otherwise, quite a lot of football played and no winners found in the last three fixtures. So um, tell me about those games, the, the one-all and the two-all in the Premier League and the Carabao Cup final, Michael. Um, walk me through the story of the season between these two teams and the key themes that might be relevant off the back of it in this game. Well, I actually think the key one is probably the Carabao Cup final, uh, which is the most recent one. And of course, the only one that was played on neutral venue and did the same neutral venue as this weekend. Um, I mean, my, my main memory of that game really is that the number of times Chelsea were trying to run in behind Liverpool's high line. And I know that's become a little bit of a, well, it's the theme of Liverpool games. You look at the stats, I think they've caught the opposition offside, I think nearly twice as much as anyone else in the Premier League. It seems like Tickle really does want to try and exploit that. Um, and I think the use of maybe Timo Werner could be crucial this weekend because of that. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm expecting quite a quite an aggressive game in terms of the way both sides set out to play, which I don't really think of as the case in FA Cup finals. I think of them as usually quite slow burning. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, on the basis of the game so far, I think this could be a, a really good game. I think you make a good point about Timo Werner as well. Going back to that 1-0 win at Anfield last season, um, I distinctly remember Thomas Tuchel being asked, it was either before or after the game, but what was his thinking of playing Timo Werner? And he just, I think he just said speed. Speed, 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 getting people in behind the, the defensive line. And granted, I think the, the centre-backs that day were Fabinho and Ozan Kabak. So ever slightly different to the, the strength that they've got at centre-back, um, obviously this season. But... I think, again, yeah, as Michael said, it will be the story of this game as well. And Liverpool will obviously try and catch um, Chelsea offside, as they do with with every side, um, as much as possible. And often it will be because the the striker or the forward is already kind of touch and go on that offside line. Whereas I think Mason Mount did it really well of coming from his position that is often, you know, between the lines and then making that run that's kind of late from ever so slightly deeper and he did it really well to great effect in the Carabao Cup and actually should have scored one maybe two goals as a consequence so I think maybe yeah having the starting position just off the Liverpool's defensive line and making that run in behind given how big the the Wembley pitch is um, could be potentially Liverpool's undoing because Chelsea should have scored two maybe three goals from that Carabao Cup game but just didn't convert. And Mark Michael mentioned the sort of aggressive approach from both teams. Uh, do the underlying numbers, let's say an XG timeline or two from some of these drawn games that we've seen this season, do they back up the fact that these two games, from a neutral's point of view, tend to be quite open and entertaining? Yeah, well, I mean, if we remember that first half of the 2-2, that was probably one of the best first halves of, of any Premier League game this <laughs> season. So it was it was just, you know, relentless um, from start to finish. But um, 
I think, yeah, the, again, going back to that Carabao Cup game, if you look at the expected goals, the, that XG timeline, I think it was doing the rounds on Twitter, that both teams created chances worthy of a 2-2 draw. And as we know, even <laughs> after extra time, it was a, a nil-nil draw. So plenty of chances just obviously didn't convert. Um, so that's from an XG perspective. But one thing I remember reporting or doing a bit of an analysis after that 2-2 game um, in the Premier League as well. And I think one thing that Chelsea will obviously look to do against Liverpool is make sure that they can't Liverpool can't really sustain attacks all that well because I remember writing about the the field tilt of of Liverpool that that day and typically so field tilt being that that share of possession that each team have only considering the the passes in the respective attacking thirds and Liverpool up until that point had dominated the field tilt had had more of the the ball in the you know their attacking third than vice versa and Chelsea were the first side that see that in the game that season to stop Liverpool from doing so and sustaining those attacks so turning Liverpool around making sure that obviously they can get in behind and, and play those balls in behind and stop Liverpool sustaining attacks I think will also be key so the numbers kind of back that up really neatly and really nicely but um, I think that should be the the plan for the for the final as well Okay this is the Athletic Football Tactics podcast in part two more football tactics specifically when it comes to Chelsea against Liverpool in the FA Cup final and Chelsea maybe turning to Tottenham Hotspur for inspiration. Doesn't sound right, does it? But on this occasion, it might make sense. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. So 300 minutes of football, nothing to split these two teams in their last three fixtures. Uh, so, Michael, Chelsea may have a blueprint in mind already uh, of how to, to play against Liverpool. But I wonder if they might have watched Tottenham's game plan against La- Liverpool last weekend and Klopp's response to it as well, of course, uh, with interest. Yeah, I think that playing against that three at the back system does cause Liverpool problems. They've had problems, I'd say, against Chelsea, against Tottenham. Um, even Everton recently played that way and it took a, a Divock Origi goal very late on for Liverpool to get the breakthrough. So yeah, I think that could cause problems. And I just think, I mean, I thought the reaction to, to Klopp's quotes were a little bit over the top. I mean, it's a guy who's just seen his team probably lose the league title, if you like, um, and was clearly a little bit upset, a little bit emotional, whatever. But it probably does hint at the fact that he, he doesn't like playing against that style of football. We do know that. So yeah, whether Chelsea are going to play as deep, as defensive, I doubt it. Um, but there is something in the formation maybe that is causing issues. I think as well, if you think about the Tottenham's approach, typically it is fairly counter-attacking and their their average possession this season has been about 51%. I'm not sure what that is specifically if we just look at it under Antonio Conte, but they obviously are far more counter-attacking than maybe Chelsea. So it's it's not necessarily in Chelsea's style to maybe give up possession quite as much. I think they, they like to defend by having the ball if that makes sense and their average possession this season is 61% which I think is the third highest in in the league so they like to dominate the ball more often than not and I, I can't see them necessarily conceding possession quite to the same extent as maybe Spurs did whether or not you know knowing that it's a good tactic maybe maybe they will look to ever so slightly but I can't see it quite to the same degree that Spurs did. Coxie are you happy to put a fork in the title race? I think they probably had to win every game yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I kind of understand his his disappointment. I don't really know why it was worth him 
going off on one as he did, but uh, I'd be surprised if they get it back from here, yeah. Well, as ever, when we talk about Liverpool and Manchester City and these incredible uh, battles that they've had, I find it pretty incredible that, that Liverpool aren't going to win the title if they don't because, Mark, this is a Liverpool team who over the last four months, so since the 11th of January, let's say, uh, 14 wins and two draws in 16 league games. That's 2.75 points per game over a 40% chunk of the season Uh, and the draws, of course, with Manchester City and with Tottenham. Um, In all competitions in that time, 28 games, 23 wins, four drawn games against Spurs City, Benfica and the Carabao Cup against Chelsea, which they won on penalties. Uh, Just the one defeat, that was a 1-0 defeat to Inter Milan, which didn't matter because they'd won the first leg 2-0. 61 goals scored in that time, 2.2 per game and 16 conceded 0.6 per game. They've only conceded uh, two goals or more in four of the 28 fixtures and they didn't lose any of those four games. So Mark mentioned it earlier. Michael, If is there an argument that if Liverpool turn up and put in their best performance, it doesn't matter how Chelsea play, it doesn't matter how they set up and how well they execute that game plan because Liverpool are too good? Maybe. I mean, I, I kind of agree with the sentiment that Liverpool are the favourites and are capable of outplaying teams. But I mean, Chelsea are very strong defensively. They can defend deep when they need to. And they do have counter-attacking threats. So... Um, I mean, Chelsea got a good record in in big games over the last 18 months, really, since Tuchel took over, most obviously the European Cup. Um, but they got to the League Cup final, where it was 0-0. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, I don't, I don't necessarily subscribe to that because I think Chelsea on their day are very good at coming up with a particular tactical game plan, even if they're forming the league recently, has not been particularly impressive. We can kind of say the same for, you know, their run to the Champions League final last year. They weren't that... Impressive in in the league, they weren't scoring enough goals, but they did get the job done, kept clean sheets. So, yeah, I, I can see something similar happening this weekend, to be honest. I think you made a really good point before as well, Michael, of just how much Liverpool do come unstuck a little bit when when there's just more numbers in the defensive line, whether it's a you know back three, back five, obviously however, however you want to say it. But when there's not too much space in those wide areas, those half spaces, then then Liverpool do come unstuck. And we spoke about it before, obviously Chelsea twice, obviously drawing twice, Spurs twice, the Brentford game, that was a kind of more of a chaotic game, but Brentford obviously playing with a, a back three as well. You mentioned the Everton game, which is a good example. And I think if I, if I recall as well, Antonio Rudiger has had a lot of success, obviously on the left side of the defence against Mo Salah. I think that Mo Salah hasn't really got too much out out of um, Rudiger down that side. And he hasn't really had that much damage against him. So maybe it's because Rudiger's able to kind of get into that that channel and not allow Salah to get into the space that he wants to. And then obviously Liverpool's so dominant down that right, Henderson rotating with Alexander-Arnold and Salah. So especially with, counter that as well, with the Fabinho injury, meaning Henderson's going to probably have to play defensive midfield, which means there's probably less rotation down that right side as well. And obviously Salah being a key threat on the right. So mm. it, you can't discount the fact that Chelsea have still got a good good chance, despite what I said earlier. Michael, what could it be in tactical terms that, that, that the mere fact of a, a well-drilled five-man defence causes Liverpool more problems than, than anything else? What might that be down to? Well, I think it was the same for Guardiola's Barcelona. I remember him saying he doesn't didn't like playing against three and five. And it kind of makes sense because I think the, the wide players want to play in the gaps between the 
the fullbacks and centre backs. And I think if you play a solid five and you've got wing backs tracking inside with those wide players and all passing them over, it's more difficult to drag opponents out of shape, to be honest. Um, so yeah, I think that probably is a factor. And I think it's also just about sheer numbers and, and playing deep. I mean, Liverpool are built to break into space. They have got more than that because of the crossing threat from the wide players. But I did think in that game against Tottenham at the weekend in the second half, they did look slightly, not out of ideas, but they, they tended to just be crossing the ball quite aimlessly, I thought, for Liverpool. And it was almost like they were becoming frustrated. And obviously, if you make teams frustrated, they tend to do things they don't want to do. So, um, yeah, I think there is something in the formation causing issues. Just just to add to that, Michael, you, again, really good point, because they, it was the most crosses that they'd made that season. Um, so it seemed like it was more of an act of desperation rather than just having, obviously, such good width normally with Robertson and Alexander-Arnold, obviously. But it was the most crosses they put in that season. Um and quite aimless ones at that at times. Mm. I wonder if there's a, an aspect to of it uh, to it where the, you know, let's say the front five of Liverpool, which includes the the fullbacks, the the wide forwards, and the striker, let's say that's being closed off, shut down, cancelled out, whatever phrase you like to use. Then of course, naturally, the onus might fall a little heavier on the central midfield players to pick the lock to create the chances and and of course in uh, in in Kevin De Bruyne Manchester City have someone who who does that probably better than, than most in the world whereas Liverpool's central midfield over the last few years I think we've categorized them as as having a, a more functional role and less of a pure creative role but of course Mark this takes us to Thiago might I suggest that should that happen, should Chelsea's back five do the job against Liverpool's front five it could be a question of how good is Thiago going to be on the day? And that could make a big difference to, to Liverpool unlocking the door. Yeah, I mean, I could talk about Thiago for a full episode, <laughs> no problem. Not even based on the numbers, because it's his technique, isn't it? It's the type of passes that he makes and the, the way that he breaks lines and stuff. And I think that the balance will be really good here because, as I mentioned, I think that Jordan Henderson will end up playing the defensive midfield role, which will probably mean Naby Keita will be on the right, Thiago on the left. And that balance, I think, will be really good because Thiago is obviously able to pick the passes and thread balls that some very few players can. But Naby Keita is really good at running running off his, his man and sort of running between the lines and carrying the ball as well. So from either side, there's there's a threat of if you stand off, maybe Thiago will pick out the pass. And if you get tight, maybe Keita will, will break those lines and maybe look to run in behind as well and try and create overloads in slightly more central areas, which he's he's been good at, I think, this season better than ever. Um, so I think it, the balance could work there. It's just obviously the the destructive, defensive um, nature of Fabinho definitely will be missed. But... Yeah, Thiago on a pitch like Wembley, as he showed against Manchester City, it will just come into his own, won't he? Uh, when it comes to Chelsea, I'd like a bit of an update, really, Michael. So much swirling around off the field, of course, that uh, maybe some people's attention has, has turned to that rather than what they're doing on the pitch. Since the start of April, you referenced it earlier, fairly poor league form, two wins, two draws and, and three defeats in the league. Uh, this does not include a fixture against Leeds United, which takes place a few hours after we finish recording this. Knocked out of the Champions League as well in, in fairly remarkable circumstances against Real Madrid. So not necessarily specific to this match, but in general... Can you sum up where Chelsea are at right now as a team? Well, I felt since Christmas they weren't really playing for anything. If I'm being honest, I don't think they were in the title race. I don't think they really had that much chance of falling out of the top four. And I can't help thinking that maybe in terms of fitness and also in terms of tactics, they were just prioritising the cup competitions. And if they were doing that, it's worked very well. They got to the Carabao Cup final. They got to the FA Cup final. And they were very, very close uh, to getting through, you know, in the Champions League as well. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, I'm... 
I'm tempted to give Tuchel a bit of a free pass with a caveat. The caveat is that they should have been much closer to challenging for the league. But after that, I think they probably focused on the Cups. Um, I think there are some underlying issues there. He's never really found the right balance or the right combination in the final third, as far as I'm concerned. Um, I think Lukaku is a major part of that. But even without him, um, I'm not quite sure there is a reliable three that he can call upon who have the the relationship and the the uh, the understanding mm. that other teams do. Um, but yeah, I, I, like I say, I, I do I do fancy their chances of turning it on for a big game in the cup final. They haven't actually won back-to-back games in the league since March, which isn't, uh, granted, that's not that long ago, but they had a five-game winning streak and Mm. haven't put back-to-back wins together since. Um, And I just, again, looking at the numbers and expected goals, and they have had a bit of a dip in the the quality of chances that they've created, probably going back a few weeks. And even though the results haven't been great recently, they've still been creating quite a bit in attack. But I think the main concern is, has been their defence in terms of some silly mistakes. So I'm thinking there's the Christensen one against Arsenal. There's the Aspilicueta one against Everton. They come to mind. But I looked at their expected goals against figures. Um, and so they've had basically some of the worst expected goals against figures in the past few games of their entire season. So their Arsenal loss had an expected goals against of 2.3. The Brentford loss recently was an expected goals against of 2.2. The Wolves draws 2.2. The Everton loss was two. So you think, yeah, conceding chances worthy of about two goals is just not what you associate with the Thomas Tuchel side. So whether that is sometimes, yeah, mistakes on an individual level, maybe a slight drop off. I think I've seen from Chelsea fans saying about Edouard Mendy maybe not being at his complete peak of his powers at the moment. Um, naturally, you're going to get maybe a dip in form with goalkeepers, but um, it's interesting to see that, yeah, some of their worst um, expected goals against figures have been in recent games. Michael, it's interesting to me that you highlighted the, the front three and, and maybe still not quite finding the balance, uh, which I, I think certainly looks to be true. But I wonder whether you could almost look at the midfield and the defensive zones and, and ask a similar question. That Those were areas that looked pretty watertight when winning the Champions League uh, just uh, just under a year ago that now uh, there are still quite a lot of question marks about not just heading into next season in, in particular in defense where just the you know the very question of personnel and who will be at the club uh, is up in the air but in in midfield as well there are a lot of midfield players in the squad that they have different profiles and when i think about the way that they've been used over the last few months it, it's not you know, when they've been chopped and changed, it doesn't strike me like when Liverpool chop and change their central midfielders and they slot in seamlessly because they all understand their roles. It still feels like there's a there's a sort of imbalance in the alchemy of the midfield. And it just made me wonder whether whether Thomas Tuchel might just seem to have slightly less of a grip on things compared to a year ago. But from, but from what you've said, I'm willing to, to accept that that might be uh, hypercritical and maybe a bit too far. No, I, I do understand what you mean very much so. I mean, let's be honest, there it does seem to be a bit of a culture at Chelsea of this happening. I mean, Mourinho's side in 2014-15, absolutely brilliant first half of the season, pretty good second half of the season, walked to the league title, and six months later he lost the dressing room. Uh, Antonio Conte, incredible first season, second one he seemed like he couldn't wait to get out. And and maybe even Frank Lampard. I mean, his his first season, I think, with his constraints in terms of transfers and that kind of thing was pretty impressive. And then midway through his second, he was, you know, really not getting the results and was eventually let go. So I mean it's not unusual for this to happen at Chelsea. Um I think I think Tuchel's been 
obviously in a difficult situation with the ownership. I think that probably will have caused instability within the the dressing room as well. The Lukaku thing, I, I don't really understand why Lukaku was quite so public with his criticism of the manager. I think that seems to have created a rift between them that hasn't really healed from what I gather. So there's been some difficult things. I'm not sure necessarily he's done much wrong. But yeah, I, I completely agree. It seems a much less cohesive side than it was a year ago. Well, this is the Athletic Football Tactics podcast. And in our final part, we'll be talking about where this match will be won and lost. And then it'll be time to talk about number nines, both incumbent and incoming. Stay with us. Right, FA Cup final, Chelsea-Liverpool, straightforward question, Michael Cox, where will this match be won and lost? Like I said, I mean, to go back to what we said earlier, I think the high defensive line from Liverpool is the key factor. Um, I think if Chelsea can get in behind that, it might only be once. It could just be once and that can change the game completely. Um, then that can change things. Um, so yeah, I, I think if, if if Chelsea can do that, they've got a chance. If not... Um, I think actually with Liverpool, it's, it's more difficult these days to kind of work out where they will win the game going forward because they've got more attacking options. And now we don't actually know what front three they're going to play. I mean, there's a few players who could be involved there. I would guess that Diaz will play because I think he's been in such good form. But it wouldn't be surprised if Diego Jota played. Um, so it's slightly difficult to, to tell from, from Liverpool's perspective. But uh, yeah, I'd have Liverpool the favourites and Chelsea, if they can do it on the break, get in behind, they've got a chance. I think as well we just spoke about the the midfield of, of Chelsea and, and going back to that 2-2 draw again at Stamford Bridge I think Kovacic and Kante their partnership like you'd think that they would maybe get outnumbered against Liverpool's midfield three but together they were just brilliant and the, the, what they lacked in sort of number just the two of them against the three they made up for in, in energy and, and quality and I think I'm right in saying that Kante will be injured he's not going to make it for, for this weekend as well which I think will be a, a bit of a loss. I know that Ruben Loftus-Cheek has been, he's been playing okay, uh, I think, in, in recent weeks, but never quite, you know, hitting those really high heights. And Kovacic, I think, is in a good vein of form and getting forward really well recently as well. But um, if Liverpool's midfield is cohesive, um, despite Fabinho's injury, I think that it could be there that maybe the game's won or lost as well, which is probably an obvious thing to say, the whole win your midfield battles and you're more likely to win the game. But I think with the with the layer of context of just Liverpool maybe outnumbering Chelsea's midfield as well, I think that could be key. Well, I'll put something forward even more simplistic than that, which is individual errors and big mistakes that lead mm -hmm. to chances because that's what has scuppered and undermined Chelsea so often over the last few months and Liverpool seem to be one of those teams who, whose personality doesn't really allow it or rarely allows it. Uh, even last night I saw Alisson passing the ball straight to an Aston Villa striker and, and the striker made a poor touch and you just, you know, th those mistakes seem to be punished uh, sometimes against certain teams and not by others. So um, that's obviously going to be a, a big feature of any cup final as well, albeit that's not a hugely tactical point to make. Um, more of a human one. Uh, now, another interesting feature of this game is it's difficult to predict the starting lineups, I would suggest, of both of these managers right now uh, and partly, when specifically in attack, where Liverpool have lots of very good options and Chelsea have lots of options which could potentially be put together to make quite a good attack but but maybe have struggled to do so over the last few weeks but unorthodox number nines I want to ask you about uh, Michael and and two in particular in Kai Havertz and Sadio Mane who have played quite a lot 
as the number nine for these two teams recently. Dare I say it, more by circumstance than by design. What have you made of these two uh, in the in these positions? Yeah, it's an interesting one. This is what I'm writing about ahead of the final. I think that's an interesting development for both sides. Wow, I, would you look at that? That's yeah. what you're writing about ahead of the final. I had no idea. Yeah, convenient. Um, <laughs> I really like Havertz as a player. I, and, I, and I must say, when he, he got a bit of a run as almost a central forward, I think the turn of the year last season, and I really thought that he showed the awareness in the penalty box to maybe be Chelsea's striker long term. Obviously, it looked like that had completely gone out the window when Lukaku came in. But Lukaku has, has obviously had issues. I know he scored a couple the other day, but it, it seems to me like Havertz will start up front. And I mean, he's not a natural striker, but he's tall. He's got some awareness in the box. I think he gets into the positions. I think he does have a lot of qualities for that role. And Mane is an interesting one because, I mean, it seemed at the start of the season that Liverpool's number nine this season would be Diego Jota. And Diego Jota's not a classic number nine, but the way he was played by Jurgen Klopp almost was like he was. I mean, in the sense that he was getting into the box and scoring a lot of headers and, you know, tap-ins and those kind of goals. But now it seems that probably it's going to be Diaz from the left and Mane as a central striker. And I think that's interesting because I must say this time last year, I was a little bit concerned about Mane and his form and whether he was going to be able to sustain it going into another campaign. But I mean, he came to Liverpool and played on the right and was excellent. Salah came in and he's he switched to the left and he was excellent. And now Diaz has come in the left and he's played centre forward and he's excellent. And I think Mane is a really interesting player because for me, the defining thing about Mane... He's good at a lot of things, particularly good, obviously, at running in behind and using his pace. But I think he's so good with his back to goal. He's so good at mm. receiving the ball, um, using his body. And also because he can turn either way, left foot, right foot. We've spoken about it before. There's been a couple of goals where I think he's he's scored them on the spin because the defender doesn't know which way he's going to go. And I think that helps when you're playing in central areas. So, yeah, I, I really enjoy watching both players. And uh, even though they've had a, you could say, a similar journey to playing centre-forward, uh, like you say, Ali, a bit by circumstance rather than design, but they're actually completely different players. So I think that's quite a fun contrast. I think with, with Mane as well, it's it's a fairly small sample to go from thinking about the numbers. It's only eight league games, but you know, not massively representative. But I looked at his numbers between playing as a left winger and playing as a centre forward and his underlying attacking numbers aren't too dissimilar you know between them in terms of he's taking a similar number of shots per 90 3.2 shots per 90 um, he has a similar expected goals value of about 0.6 per 90 which in itself is is very impressive you know between those two positions um, but obviously almost for the from the fans perspective as well you're seeing a better output he's he's been scoring more from those central areas he scored six goals in the eight games that he's played in a central role compared with nine goals in the 22 games the remaining games that he's played as a left winger and this is only talking about the the premier league because obviously he played uh, centrally in the the FA Cup semi-final as well so not including that but still I think that his his underlying numbers if you were to look at it just as that aren't too dissimilar but the overall output of goal scoring um, certainly is is different but as Michael said it's it's his sort of all-round game and exposing his his strengths in more central areas as well which he's he's clearly showing I think the way that he you, you're right Michael the way that he has his back to goal but also the way that he brings the ball down sometimes that sometimes I think players wait till the ball can come down and bring it down with their feet but he brings it down on all areas of his body and just sort of has a magnetic kind of way of mm. of keeping the ball really close to him real close control so that's really good in central areas as well I don't know if the numbers back this up but I always consider him to be among the most terrifying pressers of the ball 
and, yeah. and passing lane blockers from the front as well in the Premier League. Just a, an absolute menace for, for defenders who are trying to build from the back. So, uh, you know, we talk about Chelsea's mistakes at the back, giving the ball away in dangerous areas. Well, Mane's not an ideal opponent if that's going to be a trend uh, heading into the weekend. Now, uh, of course, this is a pair of unorthodox number nines playing for the teams in second and third. We've talked about Manchester City's striker situation a lot over the last few months, over the last year. And of course, as everyone will know now, as per David Ornstein's exclusive reporting, there is an orthodox number nine heading to Manchester City and that's Erling Braut Haaland from Dortmund to City. We will no doubt be doing a Haaland and Man City tactics pod in the near future. But in the meantime... Mark made an appearance on the Athletic Football podcast alongside City correspondent Sam Lee and German football writer Kit Holden yesterday. That's all about Haaland, the transfer and how he'll fit in at the Etihad. So be sure to check it out. We'll be putting our own spin on it, I'm sure, over the coming weeks. Just quickly, Michael, you know, you've spoken a lot about City's striker situation, its pros and cons, quite a lot over the last year. One part of this feels quite simple, and that is that the best case scenario for City, which is that this is a good and immediate fit, is a terrible, terrible piece of news for the rest of the Premier League and Europe's top clubs. It does seem to be the one thing Manchester City are, are lacking, just a prolific number nine who scores lots of goals. But we did say the same about Chelsea this time last year with Lukaku. I thought he'd go in, score 25 goals and they'd win the league. Um, so it's interesting. I mean, if it doesn't work out, people will say that Haaland isn't a Manchester City player, isn't a Guardiola player. But that is why they bring him in. They bring him in because he's a different option. He gives them something different. So, yeah, there will have to be an adjustment. Um, there will have to be some level of compromise. And I think Lukaku and Chelsea has shown that sometimes it doesn't always work out easily. But you have to say on paper, it's it's a very good move for City. He has been described, Mark, as some sort of goal-scoring robot. Um, but, but being a striker isn't just about goal-scoring. And Bundesliga to Premier League hasn't always been an easy transition. So, you know, what chance of some teething issues, I suppose, is what is the path I'm leading you down? And, and what might those teething issues be, in your opinion? Yeah, as we've spoken, I think, on recent previous episodes about the, the tax when you move from one league to another. You could say that about Romelu Lukaku to some extent, but obviously he hasn't played quite as much. The Timo Werner example is, is an obvious one, but I think that feeds into the wider point on the teething issues being about, the obviously, the difference in style. And Michael obviously nodded to it there that the way that Dortmund play and the way that the, the players in general in the Bundesliga is very different from from the Premier League. I think other maybe teething issues is that Erling Haaland doesn't tend to really get too involved in in the build-up. His link-up play is, is okay, but he's not too sort of um, high in the, the actions that he makes and is sometimes not too good in his ball retention a little bit. But again, I think that's more stylistic for Borussia Dortmund in the way that they play a bit more transitionally based compared to obviously Pep Guardiola is and Manchester City is far more focused on possession dominance. So making sure that he retains possession well, I think is going to be key, but his job ultimately is to get on the end of things. So there might be a slight change from a from a City perspective as well as an Erling Haaland perspective. Um, but, you know, think about his defending as well. You know, it's a non-negotiable that you have to defend well off the ball as a as a City forward. Um but this might be similar to to Jack Grealish of, of this season of just you know adapting and having time to to get used to City's way of working and vice versa City adapting to to their new signing. Mm. Michael, I, I've seen some 
Guardiola fans suggesting that uh, Guardiola's you know he's got other managers on strings and and just when other clubs and managers start to to follow the Pep Guardiola trend, uh, i.e. unorthodox strikers, um, by the time they they're sort of settled and doing that, he's already moved on to the next thing. Does that hold any weight for you here? Yeah, I think Guardiola always wants to evolve his side. I think at times he's been guilty of doing that a little bit prematurely. Um, I think he moved away from certain things that worked well at Barcelona a little bit quickly. But yeah, I mean, they've been quite patient with this. We know that they wanted a striker last summer. They were interested in Harry Kane. They decided it was too much money. They've got Haaland. And so I think we have to say they've coped very well for a season without a recognised striker, considering it looks like they're going to win the league. Well, that's it from this pod. Thank you so much to Mark and Michael for talking me through the FA Cup final and a couple of other bits and bobs. You can read all of their writing on The Athletic. Subscribe today by heading to theathletic.com forward slash tactics. You'll pay just £1 a month for six of them. Uh, I'm not sure about you, but the summer months is when I really think Michael Cox and his writing comes into his own. It's one of my favourite versions of Michael when he's got a clean slate and all of those random and quite weird ideas come to the fore because there's no matches to analyse. He starts writing about things like you know, which rivers are closest to which non-league football teams and, and, and why that's important. And by the end, you normally agree that actually this is this was a hugely important piece of work. So um, what I'm saying is good time to subscribe to The Athletic. Head to theathletic.com forward slash tactics to do so and join us next week. Subscribe to this podcast feed wherever you get your pods. We'll talk again next time on The Athletic Football Tactics Podcast. The Athletic. <laughs>